times. It's time to get back to the Matt Wyatt Show. Live in the studio. Back with you, I'm Matt, in the Bureau, the Farm Bureau Studio. We talk baseball stadiums. Coach Shanks called in and set me straight. It's the dude number one, then it is Arkansas number two. And then he likes Swayze and the box ahead of South Carolina. He said, I've never been to South Carolina. I've always heard great things about him. never seen him, though. So we got that straightened out. Some more nuggets coming up here on the text line. We're connected to you because of C Spire, the number one network in Mississippi. C Spire, customer inspired. Check them out, cspire.com. Uh, MSU 1980 texted the show, said, Matt, I used to listen to three sports talk shows every day, but now I only listen to you. Atta boy. Glad to have you, MSU 1980. Thank you. He says, uh, on the SEC baseball stadium designs, the Ole Miss and Auburn stadiums were designed by CDFL Architects of Jackson as I was a part of the team on the Auburn stadium design. I don't know who designed Tennessee's, but it was not CDFL. I appreciate that info. Um, yeah, because, you know, Coach Shanks was saying, MSU 1980, that Auburn, uh, Auburn's stadium and Georgia's stadium are very similar. He said whoever built them must have been the same because they're, you know, built very similarly. I've been to Auburn, uh, but not been to, to Georgia. But somebody who has been to Georgia's baseball stadium and very recently is with us right now on the Divinity Equipment phone line, Divinity Equipment Madison and in Jackson, your Kubota dealer, the oldest Kubota dealer in the U.S. It means they've been doing it better, longer than anyone else right here at home at Divinity. On the Divinity phone right now, Steve Robertson. He is at Scout Steve R on Twitter. Give him a follow with a bunch of others if you don't. Steve, uh, yeah, so you saw Georgia's baseball stadium two weeks ago, right? Was that your first time over there? It was. Yeah, I can now uh, complete my SEC campus coverage bingo card. I've... Uh Covered Mississippi State Athletics on all 14 SEC campuses. And, uh, you know, Georgia's beautiful. It really is. And uh, I like what they've done with their stadium. You know, it's easy, you know, when you go to Duty Noble all the field. You go to the places, you're like, eh. But, you know, not everybody has the crowds and the demand that we have. And they don't need – they don't have the need for that extravagant facility. But I think, you know, Georgia is proud of what they have, and they should be. And uh, it's a beautiful campus. It's a nice little ballpark there. And uh, – you know, I had a good experience. I mean, you know, other than that Saturday game was standing. I mean, you know, it was, yeah. uh, it was a great time in Georgia. Uh, did you find that park, maybe just kind of the way it's built and everything, to be similar to Auburn's ballpark? Yeah, in some respects, the grandstand. I mean, okay. you know, Plainsman Park is, is very different. You know, the fencing and all is very unique. And I like Plainsman Park, even though it's a little bit unfinished, you know what I mean? It's like, mm. which they built it kind of expecting to add on to it. And I don't, I don't know that Butch is getting the financial support. He probably deserves it all. But maybe after this year, they put together a good a good season, and they're off to a great start. But I've always thought Plainsman Park kind of had that unfinished feel to it. And uh, they need to put some luxury boxes in up there. And, of course, you've got to have the demand for that. But mm. uh, haven't been around and seen what everybody else has got, man, it, it sure makes you happy to get home, makes you appreciate <laughs> what we have at Duke Noble Field. Yeah, it sure does, and 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 I'll tell you, that's just something that popped up in the first hour. Um, we got to thinking about AutoZone Park, where State's going to play tonight, and I started making a list of these baseball parks, and I haven't been to all of them, so some of it was based on hearsay. And I had South Carolina's baseball park ranked really high on my list, and then Coach Doug Shanks called in. He said, no, Arkansas is much nicer place than South Carolina's. Um, so 
I guess after hearing from Coach Shanks, I have my top five baseball venues in the SEC is this, Steve, and you correct me where you think I'm wrong. We had uh, Duty Noble Field number one. It's really the best in the country. It's not close. We had Arkansas two. We had Swayze three, according to Coach Shanks, uh, and then Alex Box four, and then South Carolina at five. And, you know, Florida's got a new one, and we had them six, and we had Texas A&M Bluebell at number seven. You okay with that list? I am not at all. And uh, here's what I will tell you about that. So are we ranking stadiums or are we ranking atmospheres? Yeah, it's stadiums. Yeah, it's stadiums. Well, Arkansas has a number two atmosphere. They don't have a top five stadium. I mean, they've kind of let it get antiquated. Now, they've done some enhancements since we've been up there last time, so I'm eager to see that when we get there this weekend. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as far as, like, you know, the grandstand and, and the concourses and things like that, it's really kind of antiquated in some respects. But as far as atmosphere goes, you go out that hog pen wearing, uh, wearing another team's jersey. I mean, you know, it, it, uh, it's <laughs> going to be festive, let's just say that, you know. But uh, I, I, one of the things that I do like about, you know, uh, at Oxford, the university stadium there, is I, I really think that grandstand – with the exception of Duty Noble, is probably as good as there is in the SEC. I think them and LSU are right there together. Mm-hmm. The thing I don't like about LSU is I don't like all those placards out there on the wall. I may, it makes it look like a minor league park. I don't mm-hmm. think it has the same feel that Swayze and Baum and um, and Duty Noble and, and really Founders Park. But you know, from a facility standpoint, you know, Founders Park is a great place to go play, but just, there's not a lot of atmosphere there because the team just hadn't been Hadn't been great the last few years. Had a big weekend, but, um, you know, it's, that's the thing, too. It's like Mississippi State, you got the facility, you got the atmosphere, and, you know, you got a national championship. There's a lot to feel good about. Steve Robertson on your radio right now. And, Steve, I, I wanted to get a chance to kind of catch up with you and talk a little spring football, so maybe we kind of jump into that now. I know the team is going to be on the field today and have their first uh, full pads practice, so there will be some, some thud and a little bit of tackling going on. Uh, it's been the you know the the shorts practices up until now kind of getting going. What are you kind of drawing from the early practices and early reports of this Mike Leach team? And maybe start me off what you're hearing about kind of what the strong suit is so far. And I know it's early early spring, but what are you hearing positively? Well, they can pitch and catch. You know that's yeah. that's the thing, and and then you need to be able to pitch and catch when you throw it as much as we do, but. Uh, you know, wheels look good, and and uh, and the receivers. I mean, the, the numbers there. I mean, you know, Matt, if you'd had this number of receivers to throw to, I mean, you might be in Atlanta. I may have a statue of you out here, not just the one in you know down there in Prattville. We may have one here, you know. But uh, but uh, it's a great group of receivers. You know, the the big question mark is is going to be tackles. You know, and mm-hmm. you know, I, it's I'm eager to see. I'll be out there Thursday. I'm getting ready to head to Memphis, and I'll be out there Thursday. I'm eager to see, you know, what Percy Lewis does. And how can he handle, you know, guys like Tyra Sweet and Jordan Davis and you know, people like that? And I don't know how much Jordan's going to do in pads, but, you know, it, it's, it's a guy that's got an impressive wingspan, a lot of girth. How is he going to handle the quickness of the SEC defensive end? I mean, I think in many respects, that might be the question of the season. You know, you've got the other pieces in place. If you can shore things up on the tackle and, and, and listen, I'm not going to ever you know, speak negatively about a guy that I think gave his best, but you know, I don't know that there's much of a, uh, you know, a letdown or a trade-off at right tackle. I think Stephen Lasoya will come in and, and do a good job, and, and you know, Mason Miller tells me he's one of the hardest-working guys on the team, and he's a newcomer. And that's good to hear. 
But that left tackle spot could be really, really big for Mississippi State. And you go out and get the number one junior college offensive tackle in the country, so you've done your best to address the need. Now it's kind of up to him. But uh, you feel good about that, and I think they still need to get a, a safety out of the portal. Uh, you, Jackie Matthews is a guy that they have high hopes for, but you probably need one more. That's a position group, you know, due to some transfers and some injuries and some guys just not panning out. That's a group right there that um, has kind of struggled at times, you know, to make plays. You know, they got better last year, but, uh, you know, still not exactly where you'd like to be as a two deep at safety. But uh, outside of that, I think the backers can be a strength, and getting Jordan Davis back as a defensive end really adds some some elements to the Bulldog pass rush. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Percy Lewis. Um, listed at 6'8", 345 pounds, and they've got him on there, you know, playing left tackle in the early part of spring. Is he every bit of 6'8"? Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, what's, and it's, what's interesting, too, you know, I talked to some of the coaches down at Perk throughout the season, you know, and I'm like, you know, they're going to have to trim him up, you know, and I said, mm-hmm. it looks like he's a little bit trimmer this year than last year. And they're like, no, he's not uh, – He's not weighing any less. He's just kind of stacking it different. You know, he got in the weight room and, and kind of transformed his body a little bit. So I'm eager to see what Tyson Brown and those guys can do with him over the next few months. But, uh, yeah, he is he is a very, very large human being. I mean, like, he's the kind of guy that, like, when, you know, when they had the traveling carnival and all, and they'd have, like, the, you know, the giant out there, that, that, that would be him. He is a, a huge guy with a massive wingspan. That's the thing you begin to think about. You know, getting out there and, and and having that guy that sets a broad edge. I mean that that's what you're looking for. You know, mm. you know Cam Jones is the guy that plays really hard for State. And he could play right tackle, but he doesn't have the length. You know that Lasoya and certainly not Percy has. And when you think about some of these guys, maybe a little bit quicker than you, but if you can get your hands up and get them out, you can push that guy by the quarterback. And so that's kind of the task for Mason Miller right now is getting him up to SEC speed. Steve Robertson on your radio right now. He, he's an author. He's got a new uh, book out there right now called Dogpile about last year's baseball team winning the national championship. You can find his Mississippi State coverage on Gene's page, part of the 24-7 Sports Network, and on Twitter he is at ScoutSteveR. Did I bury the lead, Steve, by not asking you right offhand there who's going to be the backup quarterback or at least about the backup quarterback job? Did I bury the lead there? I don't think so, but I'll be surprised if it's not Sawyer Robertson. I mean, that was there, there was all this discussion last year. And I don't I don't know how things get started sometimes. I really don't. But there were some people that kind of falsely suggested that Sawyer Robertson was running fourth team. Well, first of all, we don't have a fourth team. Um, right. And then the second thing that I would say is, you know, Sawyer Robertson was a freshman that showed up last year in June. He he didn't he wasn't here in January, so there was really no chance of him fully passing anybody on the depth chart. He needed to sit and learn. And Chance Leverkitch is the guy that comes in. It was a very serviceable backup for Mississippi State. If Will had gone down, I think we'd still be able to win some ball games with him. Uh, and so you don't want to put that pressure on a young guy like that. But he is extremely gifted. Mm. He has a huge arm. Mm. He, and he's, he's more mobile than Will. And that's not throwing shade at Will. It's just not an element of his game. But when things break down, Sawyer's the guy that can tuck it and go a little bit. So I, I will be shocked if Sawyer Robertson doesn't emerge as the number two quarterback uh, after spring camp and certainly fall practice. And, and so everybody's excited about Braden Locke, the kid they signed out of Texas, who he's in for spring. Unlike Sawyer Robertson last year, Locke gets in here, he's in there for spring. But, Steve, I know you, you can speak to this too because you've heard coaches talk about it. I mean, in, in this offense, it is a rarity, isn't it, for a first-year player freshman to come in there 
and do anything but redshirt and learn. Um, it almost never happens under Mike Leach, does it? Absolutely. And Will Rogers had to kind of do that out of necessity. And, of course, you know, you're a first-year coach and your grad transfer doesn't work out, so you kind of start playing it for the future. And, and Will has benefited from that. But, uh, yeah, you, 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 you kind of know coming in to a Mike Leach scheme, you're not going to play for a year or two. You, you're just not. I mean, you're going to come in here and learn, and you're going to get repped and repped and repped and repped to death and then you're going to get a chance to compete later. So everybody kind of knows the price of poker when they show up. So let's ask a, a hardball question there. So if, you know, as advertised, Sawyer Robertson is that good, and he's shown flashes. I've seen it myself. Saw it last year as a freshman. He hadn't even been there long, and he'd throw a ball or two, and you'd go, whoa. Well, what does that mean for a guy like Daniel Greek, same age, competing for the same type job? What does it mean for him? I don't ever count anybody out, you know, and, and it, as you and I have discussed before, you know, mm-hmm. when you need to have a bunch of quarterbacks in the SEC, I mean, you, you, you just do, you can't be just invested in one guy. You've got to get everybody ready and, you know, who knows what's going to happen in and, and this, you know, the transfer portal age in which we live. I mean, you know, a guy like that comes here and, Hey, I put in a couple of years. I'm kind of buried with depth chart. I think I'm going to go home and we'll get in the portal. And, and it's hard to blame him. And I, I honestly, I think that's part of, the benefit of the portal is like, say, if you have a guy like Daniel Greek, and you know, hey, he may surprise us all and win the job. Who knows? But, but if he decides two or three years into this thing, you know, hey, I only got a short time in life to play sports. I'm not going to play here. I need to be able to go elsewhere. I'm glad that he has the ability to do that. You know, the, the downside of that is, is I don't think we need 365 day access to the portal. I, I think, you know, the kids themselves need, you know, some parameters. Okay, I can go in the portal at the end of the spring semester, the fall semester, and then. Uh, my team knows who they can count on. I know where I'm going to be, and they know who's going to be here. So I think there needs to be some adjustments in that respect. But I think Daniel Greek is a talented guy. Uh, I just like Sawyer Robertson a little bit more. I think he's a little more naturally gifted. That's not to say that Daniel's not a Division One quarterback. I certainly believe that he is. I just think Sawyer has a little more upside. Steve Robertson on your radio right now. Okay, at receiver. And, man, has that position group, just in numbers, has it really grown? And you get forward back from injury and all this. When you look at sizes and guys, when they just kind of step on the field, the kid that transferred in from Georgia, Justin Robinson, he stands out because not only you know is he new, but he's 6'4", 220 pounds. What are you hearing and what do you see from him? Well, you know, his head's still swimming a little bit, you know, and uh, I look forward to seeing him tomorrow. But, you know, talking to you know, some of our guys that uh, you know, facilitate practice out there, they, they think that he's going to be a real weapon, you know, basically a jumbo X. You know, he's a guy out there. Can you imagine that guy running the yeah. you know, five- and seven-yard curl out there and crossing the face of the safety? I mean, that, that, you know, that guy is going to be able to absorb that lick. And I think they'll utilize him a lot like they did Makai Polk, but I think that he can be a little more physical wide receiver. And so, uh, and he's a guy, again, that got to Georgia and, and, you know, was kind of chronically injured. I talked to his coach here in the offseason, and he goes, you know, Steve, the kid just had bad luck. You know, it's not it's not that Kirby and him wanted to run him off. It's just that, you know, Georgia recruits at such a high level. He got down the depth chart a little bit, and it's tough to shine, you know, when you've got a hamstring injury that, you know, that keeps you out of the out of, out of the mix for a while. And then you get over that, and you get out there, and you got a foot injury. And, and so he says he'd never been hurt a day in his life uh, during a high school career, and he never missed a snap. And then he got to Georgia and just had some bad luck. And so hopefully that's the case, and he can come in and, and be a real difference maker for Mississippi State. There's a spring football update for you if you're a Mississippi State fan from Steve Robertson. Steve, uh, you got five, six minutes left. I wanted to 
this is not something I'd, I'd planned. I didn't know this was happening until I saw it. But you have some some experience in uh, following NCA investigations and kind of what that world is like. And I just wanted to get your take on this. Uh, it's a story that popped up today. Ross Dellinger is reporting it that two U.S. senators are introducing a bill to overhaul NCAA uh, infractions processes. And so, so I'll summarize it here. But they want this bill wants uh, them to have to speed up their investigations, complete it within eight months. It prohibits the NCAA from punishing anybody for violations that are over two years old. There's a fine if they don't meet deadlines of like $15 million, okay, of the NCAA. The NCAA would not be able to use confidential sources for decisions, and and they have to answer to the U.S. Attorney General and, and put reports in when they do this. So that's what this bill is that's being put forth. When you hear those things, what's your initial reaction to it? Well, the first thing, I don't think it'll ever become law. Uh, I think this is really kind of some saber-rattling to kind of get the NCAA to get their uh, – you know, to get their house in order. You remember, you know, we even had a state legislator in the state of Mississippi to introduce a similar bill uh, during the old Miss stuff. And let's be fair. I mean, you know, that thing took way, way too long uh, to go from start to finish. You know, and that's the thing, too. If you're, if you're a coach out there, you're, you're kind of operating under a cloud for a long time, and, and they don't have to give you any updates. You know, it's just kind of like you're just kind of in limbo there. So there needs to be some change. I don't know that we need federal oversight, though. That, that's the thing. You look at the mess that the NCAA has allowed the NIL to become, mm-hmm. and they had every chance to correct that. And then, they, then of course, they wait until there's congressional hearings about it and do nothing. And now we've got a handful of laws that are you know, not in concert. And so rather than have a national policy as put forth by the NCAA, you got a state law here that, that prohibits this. And you know, our in-state schools, in many respects, you know, are kind of inhibited by the state law. Like, the universities can't be involved in help brokering a deal for name, image, and likeness. But in other states, they can. Mm. And so, you know, you can have a coach sit down and bring in some, bring in an administrator and say, hey, here's what your market value is, and here's what we've got lined up for you. You can handle all that on the recruiting visit. You can't do that in Mississippi. And so we need to either repeal the law or we need to tweak it a little bit to give our in-state schools more of a competitive advantage uh, when it comes to all of that. But I, I think, you know, the NCAA enforcement program is broken. They keep putting up all these uh, window dressing things and say, we're going to you know, streamline this and streamline that. And, uh, you know, a big part of the problem, too, is like the, you know, this this uh, Nike thing with the uh, the federal wiretaps. You know, why, why couldn't the NCAA have been a little more forthcoming with all that? If you have wiretaps, mm-hmm. if you have access to public, documents and public statements there's not a lot of investigation that needs to be done and then we have a way that basically sits around and collects millions of dollars again for the next few years while this limbo happens uh it's a good deal for him it's good work if you can get it and now he gets fired and everybody's like hey and, and that whole thing cost joe oliva his job at lsu i mean it's just insanity to see how this thing is going but the ncaa needs to get their house in order and if they don't the federal government's going to get involved i don't think anybody's going to be happy with the end result i agree with that Steve, could the NCAA, now and over the years, could they have simply spent more millions of dollars on a bigger, more robust enforcement and investigation staff if they had wanted to? 
Well, I think they absolutely could have. I think they're, I don't care what anybody says. You know, I, I interviewed Dave Didion when I wrote Flim Flam. He's a former director of enforcement with NCAA. And he goes, hey, you know, there's not selective prosecution. If, if there was, USC and Notre Dame or other programs wouldn't have been on probation. I say, well, yeah, that may be true, but, you know, you put this penalty matrix things together and then none of the, the, the cases that follow it actually match the matrix. You know, you know, you just make this thing a lot easier. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you go out there and you get a simple assault charge. You kind of know what your chart, your your, your penalty is going to be. I mean, I think they have to remove some of the ambiguity in all this and say, "Hey, this happened. It happened with the knowledge of your coaches. So your guys are going to get a one-year bowl ban, and then everybody's done." It's just all this subjective nature yeah. to how they hand out sanctions. I think that's what frustrates people. It's like, you know, you'll see some cases that are similarly situated, but then the penalties don't match. And I think that's. To me, that's the thing that makes no sense to me is that everybody should just have a, a uniform policy across the board, and then when you get in trouble, you kind of know what you're going to get. And so true. It's fascinating, too. We could go on and on and dive even further in, in, and kind of get down to it, but I think the overall idea is it takes really strong leadership committed to doing the job as opposed to committing, being committed to collecting the check. Hey, Steve? It's always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for some time. Be safe going to Memphis. See you soon. Talk to you soon. That's Steve Robertson. He is at Scout Steve R, part of Gene's page. Strong leadership, committed to doing the job, more so than the commitment to picking up the check. Every two Fridays. That's what you need at the NCAA level. Start there. Start there and figure the rest of it out. All right. More to come here on the show. I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau Insurance Studio. Stick around. And now the guy who's not bald. He's just taller than his hair is. Nice hair! It's a Matt Wyatt Show. Back with you. I'm rolling along here. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Steve Robertson. Talk to Bart Gregory in hour one here on today's show. Ernest T. Texted the show. Country please and text line. Country please and sausage on grocery store shelves throughout the southeast. It is the best sausage, hands down. Uh, That's my opinion. Ernest T. says, always an entertaining and informative interview with Steve Robertson. Good stuff. Glad you enjoyed it, Ernest T. Ed said, same here, Matt. I used to listen to you and Brooks. Now he's gone, so you're the lone wolf. (laughs) Glad I can fit your schedule. Now, I'm going back a couple of texts here, but White Denzel texted me, and yes, I did know. He said, did you know about this? I'd gotten an email uh, about this happening, and um, this is maybe a week ago, and I forgot to mention it to you. My bad. Uh, the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame Museum put this out there. They are going to have a reunion of sorts for the uh, Jackson Mets. The Jackson Mets reunion coming up next week on, well, this weekend, actually, on April the 2nd. So uh, I know there's like a couple of days of activities for, for some of the former players that are coming in, but there's a chance to, to meet and greet. If you want to look it up, like go to Facebook, look up the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame Museum. There's links there. Um, But it says, come out to the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame Museum to meet and greet former Jackson Met players on Saturday, April the 2nd at 
10 a.m. So this Saturday at 10 a.m. There's going to be players from the Mets' tenure in Jackson, which ran from 75 through 1990. Now, regular museum admission is going to be charged. That's according to the post that you sent me, Denzel. But, yeah, um, I did see that. In fact, there was an email that I got. I want to go back here and find it because there were some names of some of the former players that they were saying were uh, likely going to be there. And if I could find that, I would read them off to you. Um, here we go. Jackson Mets reunion. Let's look at this document. Here we go. <clears throat> so this is this Saturday. A group of uh, former Jackson Mets players and staff are going to be holding a reunion in Jackson like I say, it is the first and the second. I think the second is the day, and it is. Saturday is the day that you can go to the Hall of Fame Museum at 10 a.m. and meet some of them. Uh, the release that I got, the late Bill Hetrick, along with Kerry Kendall uh, Rabstock, planned the event for 2020 but had to postpone it due to COVID-19. Um, a lot of the former players have actually been involved in the planning. Some of the former players that are tentatively planning to attend include Barry Lyons, former Mets catcher, Calvin Schiraldi, Billy Bean, Daryl Strawberry, Randy Myers, Dwayne Vaughn, and two-time Texas League Manager of the Year, Sam Perlozo. Over 40 players and staff will be attending. Now, on Friday, they're going to have like a golf outing and it's a dinner out there at some point. And then Saturday morning, you're going to have that gathering at the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame Museum Doors are going to open at 10 a.m., meet and greet. It'll go on until noon. You'll need to pay regular admission to the museum to get in there. Public is invited to attend. There will be players from the Mets tenure in Jackson, which ran from 75 through 1990. During that time, the Mets were one of the top producers of talent in the minor leagues. Over 100 players during that time came through Jackson and played in the major leagues. Uh following that so that's really really a cool thing that's going on white denzel thank you so much for the reminder on that and so we could ahead of time uh maybe get a little word out about it all right over to the phone line divinity equipment phone brandon hanging on line one what's up brandon matt how are you guys today buddy just right thanks for calling hey uh i'm not trying to derail the show but i thought about you last night and uh I, I, you know, we you, you don't even have to discuss it afterwards, but I thought about you last night. I was watching Sanford and Son, hmm. and Lamont came in there and asked Fred what he was making. He said, guacamole, it's guacamole and Swiss cheese. <laughs> he said, I call it holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let y'all go. Love you guys, man. See you. <laughs> it is. That is fantastic. <laughs> Holy moly. Holy moly. Guacamole and Swiss cheese. Brandon, thank you for that. It's cheered me right up. <laughs> I can just hear Fred saying that in his voice. I call it. Holy moly. Holy moly. <laughs> Come on, Lamont. Holy moly. Lamont, you big dummy. Big <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> yes, you ugly. Open the door. I can't. Why not? You're too ugly. You're too ugly. <laughs> <laughs>
I think uh, some other players I'd like to have seen come to that day, Lenny Dykstra and Boogie Wilson. That wouldn't be great. Did I'm you used to go to some of the Jackson Mets oh, games? Yeah, yeah. I was there when I watched the Dykstra play in Strawberry. All yeah. Of, uh, Mookie Wilson. Um, let's see. Uh, I know. I remember there was a second baseman, Ronald McDonald. He used to catch catch a lot of heck. Ronald McDonald. Yeah, he was second baseman for the Mets for a while. The Jackson Mets. Who was his roommate? The Hamburglar? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Do you have a, do you have red hair? <laughs> I don't think so. He wear a lot of makeup. I know that guy too. Had these big shoes. Big yeah, big shoes. shoes. I had no I, had no idea he was an athlete. But man, yeah, they had some they had some great teams. It's just amazing the, the players they they won a bunch of minor league titles. Them. Yeah, they sure did. Yeah. So like okay, so if we do the they were a double A team. Yep. For fifteen years, right? Yeah, at least yeah, fifteen years. Was it? Yeah, seventy. I got down here and got down here in seventy nine and started watching them till ninety. I watched. Them. Well, get this. All right, so in fifteen years they had three league titles: eighty one, eighty four, eighty five. They had six division titles: eighty one, eighty three, eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. They were good, man. So, um, yeah, it's really cool, and and it coincided the success of that minor league team and the fact that you know during the time that it was in Jackson. It's filtering all these players to the major leagues when the Mets, for one time in their history, were any good. Yeah. When they won it. Okay. So, again, look at the time frame, right? So, the Mets win the 86 World Series, beat the Red Sox. Buckner booted it. Um, But you mentioned Mookie Wilson. He scored the run, right? Mm-hmm. Gary Carter, those teams, Daryl Strawberry. And that same time, so yeah. the I same year that the the New York Mets won the World Series is one of those years that the Jackson Mets had a had a league title in the minor league system there. Yeah. That's really cool. The Jackson Mets came into existence in 1974 when the New York Mets moved their Double A club, the Victoria Toros. <laughs> After only one year in Victoria, Texas, no one they competed in the Texas League. Civic leaders in Jackson had mounted a campaign to build a new stadium for a minor league club. And at the time, Jackson had not fielded a club since the Jackson Senators last played in the Class C Cotton States League in 1953. Bill, where did the Jackson Senators play ball? I don't know. You don't happen to know that, do you? we got a story brewing on our hands here. Can you tell I'm interested? I am fascinated by places, old ballparks, with a history, especially ones that are run down and condemned and got kudzu growing over them. There's just something about that. It's kind of, I don't know, uh, where movies were located and shot and then old ballparks and old schools that are vacated. You know, like you go to, um, you know what I'm talking about, Bill? Uh, is it Brooksville? It's outside of, not too far outside of Macon, and you're on Highway yeah. 45 headed south. Remember that old high school that's sitting right on the highway? Totally condemned. All the windows busted out, and it's grown up and everything. That kind of stuff fascinates me. All these old things that are falling in. What is that? It's weird. (laughs) But I would love to know, where did the Jackson Senators play ball? They played there in 1953. I'm sure there's a field here somewhere that's no longer around. Yeah. I'm sure there is. I didn't even know. 53 is when I was was born, so I don't know (laughs) if that that doesn't look good. I expect you to know this, Bill. You're only one year old. I should know that. (laughs) I'm kidding. 
All right. Um, okay. The text is somebody just sent about the, the the Jackson Mets playing the New York Mets. That is true. I think they beat them in a exhibition game. Very cool. Yeah, uh, let's, let's get Paul on before the music starts. Paul right. on line one. Paul, thanks for calling. What's up? Hey, Paul. Yo, Paul. Hey. There he is. You're up. You? you are up. What's hey, you've up? You had an interesting uh, discussion about ballparks and everything today. Yeah. Uh, the uh, how, how many major league parks have you been in? Oh, not many, not many, um, not not anywhere near half of them. I oh, still that's a lot more than I have. Well, I still I've, want. I've been to San. Go ahead. I've been to San Francisco. Wow. Okay. And I've been to two of the stadiums in Atlanta. Been to St. Louis. Uh, I think that's about it. Okay. I really want to go to Fenway Park. I really want to go to Fenway. Oh, yep. Yeah. I want to go to Fenway and I want to go uh, to Wrigley. Wrigley, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of that's that's all of uh, if we're a sports fan, that's our bucket list right there. That's one and two. Right? Yep. It's Fenway and Wrigley. Yeah. Well, if you get some tickets one day and, or, and an extra seat in your car, Paul, uh, let me know. I'll go with you. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting ready to go on a radio break? I am, yes. The music just started. Feel free if I'll you got. I'll call you back. Yeah, please do. Call me back. We got these hard breaks around here. <laughs> They're going to happen whether we like it or not, aren't they, Bill? Yes. Well, I've been in Dodger Stadium. I was in the old Jack Murphy Stadium. Been yeah. in Atlanta. But I went to Dodger Stadium when I was like 10 years old and watched the Angels play when they still shared the stadium with the oh, Dodgers. Oh, man. That's Whenever cool. Whenever the Dodgers were out of town, the Angels played. That. So I got to watch neat. the Angels play. That is neat right there. Chavez Ravine. Chavez Ravine. And those ocean-colored seats. You know, it's like the sand and in the ocean. They did that on purpose. Yeah, I was about, I was about, about 11 years old, so that was... Are you ready? Get ready for the Mississippi State Radio Analyst. And he's on your radio. Right now. now. You've got the Matt Wyatt Show. Hi. Bill, you got me? I got you. All right. Those old hard breaks. Those old hard oh, breaks. Yeah. <laughs> Came running back in here. Yeah, that's all right. All right. I'll just go with the music play till you got here. Well, I appreciate that. Is Paul um, Paul back with us yet? He said he's going to call back. I think back. he's calling right now. Okay. All right. Check him out. All right, back with you here in the Bureau, the Farm Bureau Insurance Studio. Farm Bureau, go! Yeah, he's back. With the home team. We got him back? He's back. Okay, Paul. Before <laughs> you were so rudely interrupted. By that music. By that oh, music. Okay. All right, you got it. You got the floor. What's up? I'm going to segue, and then I'll get back to my point. But uh, what's the largest bass you ever caught? The largest one I've ever caught and got him in the boat was a little over eight pounds. Uh, no, 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 no. I take that back. I take that back. In a boat, eight pounds. Uh, about, I guess it's been, let's see, what would 2016 be? How many years ago was that? So that'd be six years ago. Um, I was fishing from the bank uh, at a local pond, lake. It's actually yeah. big enough to be a lake. And I was fishing from the bank, and I've got video of the whole thing. I caught one. I didn't have a scale. But I caught one that was easily over 10 pounds. I estimated somewhere in the neighborhood of 
maybe as light as 11, maybe as heavy as 13. Without a scale on me to actually weigh it, I don't know. But it was easily one of those that's way over 10 pounds. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that'd be the largest one I've ever you caught. You measure the length? Well, you the, measure the length? Yeah, and I could show you on the video. The only thing that I had to measure it by, Paul, is uh, my, my boots. Okay, so I wear a size 15 shoe, right? And, yeah, I've heard. And my, from, the, from the back of my heel to the point of my big toe is exactly 12 inches. So the boot, therefore, is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 13, between 13 and 14 inches, the boot itself. And I put my foot down there, and I could have, I mean, this thing was, this thing was close to twice the length of my foot, and I had my boots on. That's yeah, the that's, only, that's the only that's way I had good. to measure it, yeah. Yep, that's pretty good. You know, I've I've caught I've caught three around eight plus, and um, they were anywhere from twenty two or twenty three inches up to about twenty six inches. Wow! It just depends on the time of the year that you catch. Them. Yeah. Because you know, probably the largest bass that I would have ever caught, uh, I caught when I was about twenty one. A buddy of mine. Uh, was fishing up at a lake uh, north of Oxford, mm-hmm. and and the fish was actually 26 inches, but it only weighed about seven and three quarter pounds because oh. it was first uh, of February, and of course, skinny, 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 and but by, probably by the first yeah. of April, she was she w- was or would have been full of eggs and probably would have full of eggs and about nine and a half pounds. Right, 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 sure, right, and I. And, and I could put my fist in its mouth, and and, and it was just a big fish. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, I've always loved fishing. Mm. Do you uh, do you brim fish when they're on the bed? I do, and I've got a uh, there's a pond slash lake out here close to my house, and I was walking around it yesterday looking, and I'm starting to. You're, I'm already. I mean, here it is. It's not even April yet, but I'm already seeing where they are kind of congregating in certain places, Paul, and it's like somebody has somebody has stirred up the bottom, right? Like so the water's murky yeah. in these areas and what it is yeah. is they're fanning out those beds and it's and you look and you see them and there's some big ones in there. So they're getting started. Well my dad taught me this and I fished all my life to believe this. The first full moon of May is when they're at their peak as far as bedding. Okay. And uh, I'm telling you, you mm-hmm. can catch. I don't, my dad and I, uh, we fished at a lot of lakes around here and fished a lot on Ross Barnett. And uh, I'm telling you, you can <laughs> you can take a hundred a day home. With you. you can. And, you know, now this is just my experience, but you're talking about brim fishing. I have yet to find anything that works as well or better than a cricket. Now I know a cricket that cricket is the best thing. Yeah, it's the best thing. I, there, there are people that use all kinds of stuff, and like I, I went fishing. We did a TV story with a guy. This is twenty years ago. That at, at a different time of year, he actually finds these. Big, he would find these brim in deeper water and catch them. He had a technique for catching them with these things called wax worms. And he really caught them. But yep. in terms of just fishing in shallow water for brim, uh, nothing beats a cricket. Do you uh, do you use an ultralight rig? Well, 
It's funny you ask. I never had. Tell me you don't use the cane pole. No, I don't. But what I'm saying is I, I never had um, used ultralight anything. I'd never done ultralight fishing. But a couple of years ago, yeah, a couple of years ago, I just got one and put, I put like four pound test on it, like really light test. And that's what you want to do. Four pound test. Yeah. And you can catch a little bit of everything now. And, and to the people listening, we were talking about crickets for brim fishing. That's what we're talking about. Crickets for brim fishing. I don't, you can't beat when you're trying to catch brim, especially bed and fishing around a bed. Nothing works as well as a live cricket does it, Paul. No, it doesn't. And and the worst thing about going brim fishing with crickets, if you take your wife, you've got to bait her hook. <laughs> they don't want to handle that cricket, do they? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, my daughter, she loves to go and watch that cork and catch them. <clears throat> she doesn't even mind holding the fish, you know. She likes to sometimes hold it and throw well, it back. But she don't well, want to I'm touch gonna that cricket. I'm going to tell you one more secret, and I'm going to stop. All right. When you, when you are using a cork, Take a, like, number four hook and wallow it out, the middle of it, and then use it. But do not put a, but do not put a, uh, uh, whatever you call it in the top of the, uh, cork. Okay. Secure the line. Okay. Let, let the line run through the cork. And then, and then watch the cork and it'll bobble. But if you put, but if you make the cork where it's stationary, mm-hmm. a lot of times if, if the fish are biting and they're a little bit finicky, finicky so to speak, uh-huh. okay. uh, as soon as they touch that hook, they'll open their mouth. Uh-huh. But if, if you let that, if you let that uh, line stay where it can go up and down through the cork, mm-hmm. they never feel it. And I was in a boat with a gentleman that was a few years older than me a while back, and he accused me of cheating. <laughs> and I had caught like 28 brim, and he had caught like two. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're on the brim, and I'm not. So I cranked up the Minkota, and I turned the boat around, and I said, okay, you fish where I was fishing. I'll fish where you're fishing. <laughs> and I kept getting fish, and he didn't. But I mean that that was the secret. It makes anyway. all the that is really neat, Paul. It makes all the sense in the world. And basically, what you're saying is that you've got one of the clasps on one end of that cork around the line, so it's attached to the line. But the line is able to go up and down through the cork without the cork being stationary because the flotation of the cork. What you're saying is when they're finicky, will sometimes actually pull by floating it. It kind of pulls the hook. Keeps them from inhaling that hook, basically. I hate to say it that way, but that's basically what Correct. you're saying. Okay, Correct. gotcha. Makes all yep. the sense in the world. So, yep. somebody well, never now that's it. not the only reason I call. <laughs> okay, uh, but I had to talk to you about fishing because you brought that up earlier. Okay, I like talking about the uh, talking about the the baseball stadiums in the SEC, and I, I I was very saddened that you had Swayze at four. Yeah, but, I did, and then uh, Coach Shanks corrected me. He had them at three. He had he had duty, and then he had Arkansas two. He said by far it's number two, and then he had Swayze at three. Have you been to a game at Arkansas? No, I've only I've got to see the stadium. Then how can you rank them? Yeah, 
Well, I, I, you know, same thing with South Carolina. See, that was, you're right, it was faulty because right. I had them up there. Based on what I'd heard people say all these years about South Carolina's park and the way it looks on TV, well, Coach Shanks has been there, and he said it's not anywhere near as good as Swayze. Now, they have a very good-looking park, and, yeah. and so does Bluebell Park at Texas A&M. That's mm-hmm. a very good-looking park. It is. Um, but, um, you know, Swayze is getting ready to go another major renovation. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I read about it and, recently, and it's going to improve it. It definitely is going to improve it. it, it you it's know. Gonna, it's going to be big. It's going to be really, really significant. And, uh, you know, I know there's still a sign, you know, hmm. that you can't get to Omaha from Oxford. And, <laughs> you know, I can't really argue with that. <laughs> I can't argue with that. You know, and we, we were ranked number one, and then Tennessee came in town, and, my God. I mean, we don't deserve to be in the top 15 anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, but, you do. I mean, that's baseball. Let me just remind you, uh, and then I'm going to move on to one call before we're done. Paul, you know, this time last year, State was swept at home by Arkansas. Yeah, it's, it's, I understand. This stuff happens. Hey, Paul, listen, it's good to hear from you, man. Thank you. Call me anytime. Do we? Ha- Let's get Mad Tiger in before the music starts, hopefully. Mad Tiger, thanks for calling. What's up? Hey, Matt, how are you all? Just right. Speaking of speaking of brim fishing, mm-hmm. our cricket is very good. But my mom was a professional brim <laughs> fisher lady. <laughs> okay, you 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 can't beat a red worm. Red worm, uh, you know they. And, and, and most of the time, you don't have to replace it. You know, you just yeah. take them out. But when they try and swallow it, is what they do. Yeah. Right. But the wax worm is good as well. But I'm going this evening, Matt. Y'all have a good day. All right. Thanks, Mad Tiger. He's going this evening fishing. Okay. And Mad Tiger, on tomorrow's show, we're going to need a, a real, genuine, truthful report. If you caught them on red worms or if you went back to the trusty old cricket. <laughs> The way he described it, I think he'll be sticking with the red worms. All right, fishing tips and more. We'll do it again tomorrow. For Bill, I'm Matt. In the Bureau, the Farm Bureau Insurance Studio. Farm Bureau. Go! With the home team. See you all tomorrow. See you.